Acts chapter 6. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained about the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicator, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. May God bless the reading of his word. So we are not the first church to be multicultural and to have that have an impact on who we are, on what our identity is. You know, in Acts chapter 6, we see here the earliest multicultural church. And we're going to use that to shape our reflections on who we are and what we want to be. But first, let's uh, review the material that Brian went over. I just want to condense it a little bit to make it a little bit clearer what we are talking about this morning and thinking about and what we aren't. Brian introduced, first of all, our five core values. Let's talk about this in terms of, it's roughly approximate, let's talk about this in terms of what we feel, what what we consider important, the values we hold to, uh, the deeply held things that run through everything we do. And we looked at five of the values. And this is no longer working, so thank you. We looked at five of those values. But this is, who are we? Uh, I'm sorry, this is what we feel, what, what do we feel is important? Okay? And then... The focus, what we do. We looked at, you know, basically in the five-year focus is how we use what we do at our workplaces then to do something for God. What's the correlation between uh, what we do outside the church and what we, we can do through the church and in ministry as a whole. And this morning, not what we feel, not what we do, but this morning, who we are. And one of the chief characteristics of who we are is that we're we cross multiple cultures, uh, particularly two obvious cultures, overseas-born Chinese culture and local born or raised American culture. But how does this impact who we, how does who we are impact our ministry together and our lives together? Now, two things really, two points I want to make this morning, and we see them both in Acts 6 and we see them both in our experience. One is that being multicultural raises certain challenges for us. Certain, you could say that's a polite word for discomforts or potential conflicts for us. And the other thing I'd make, the other point I would make about it is that being multicultural gives us certain opportunities. So turn with me to Acts chapter 6 and we'll look at each of these in turn. Acts chapter 6. All right. Hmm? 
I've referenced before that I'm a humanities graduate. And Brian's an engineer. So he just wanted to make sure the thing was on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's on. <laughs> we have fun together. I don't want to make too big a thing about the disparity between engineers and humanities grads. You know, I, I just thought last week I talked about this too much. Let's move on. So, okay. So here it comes up again. Anyway. So Acts chapter 6. Verses 1 to 7. Notice in verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them, or Grecian Jews, it said in the other reading, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So you remember from Israel's history that, a lot of, that the nation as a whole was deported. And then it's something that we're going to look at coming up. A a small minority of them came back to Palestine. It's just like today. You've got the diaspora, where most Jews live overseas, outside of Israel. We have more Jews living in America than they have in Israel. And then you have some Jews in Israel. So it's a similar situation we have today. In those days you had Jews that lived outside of Palestine, were called Hellenistic, you could call them Grecian Jews. They didn't live in Greece necessarily, but they were shaped by Greek culture. More shaped by Greek culture. And then you had the Palestinian Jews, uh, uh, Hebraic Jews it calls them, who were living in Palestine still. And there's cultural differences between them. The one was more shaped. No, no one, you know, this is not absolute, but this is a, a relative distinction. Uh, tendencies on a continuum. So you had one group that was more influenced by Greek culture, and you had one group that was more influenced by, uh, more pure, you could say, or they would say, more Palestinian. And look at the issue that came up between them. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because the widows of the Hellenistic Jews were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, consider the differences between these groups. There was a language difference. One would be much more comfortable in Aramaic, and the other group would be much more comfortable in Greek. And those who spoke Aramaic, Aramaic is close to Hebrew, they could probably have read their Old Testament in Hebrew. Uh, Those born overseas in the Hellenistic uh, regions would have been more comfortable in Greek. They would have had to read the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint. So they had language differences. They had cultural differences because they were raised in different regions. And here there was really a, a sense of ownership or a sense of superiority perhaps. So what's happening is that the Hellenistic, the foreign Jews are saying, look, our widows are being overlooked in the distribution of food. Here's what happened in the ancient times. You know, if a husband dies and the couple has no children or the children have predeceased, then there's no one, there's no social security system, there's no financial support for the widow. So what the synagogue would do is they would look after the widows in their midst. And then as Jews became Christians and got kind of shunted out of the, marginalized in the synagogue, then the church had to begin the same kind of care for widows. And here you have the Hellenistic Jews saying, our widows are being neglected. Now first, 
later on, I'm going to talk about some of the tensions that we've had historically between CM and EM. And, but all of our tensions pale in significance to this. Because you remember, a lot of you would be familiar with what the Old Testament says about widows and orphans. That God provides for them and he expects his people to provide for them. To say you're neglecting our widows is not a small charge. This is a, a, a charge the Hellenists are making against the Palestinians saying, you're fundamentally disobeying scripture. This is a huge issue for them. And look at the word complained against. That actually comes up in the Old Testament. Remember, you, many of you remember the stories when the Jews are in the wilderness and they don't have food. Or they have only one kind of food, all bread, all the time, every day. And they, what did they do? They complained against Moses. They complained against God. And because they complained, what did God do? He struck them dead with snakes. He struck them dead with plague. This is the same kind of, this is the same word used from the Greek Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, the same word complained against. This is, there's some potential vitriol and so some potential divine judgment coming here. This is a real big issue. It's a serious issue, and they feel emotionally intense about it. That's the problem. What's the solution? So the twelve gathered all the disciples together. They gathered the whole church together. And the twelve apostles, all of them Palestinian Jews, right? most of them from Galilee, they said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Not that waiting on tables is unimportant, but we're called to something else. So brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. And we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. And so they chose, notice these names. They chose Stephen. They chose Philip. They chose Procurus. They chose Nicanor. They chose Timon. They chose Parmenas. They chose Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They chose seven people. All of them have Greek names. Uh, the Greek-speaking Jews, the, the Jews born in Greek countries, or Hellenistic countries, complaining that our widows are being neglected. What didn't the apostles do? They didn't say, hey, quit complaining. Jesus appointed us apostles. You just accept what we do. Don't fuss about it. Uh, they didn't say, look, don't make this an ethnic issue. Don't split the church over this. They didn't say, we're apostles. You should submit to us. We're God divinely appointed leaders. You should do what we say. What they said was, you think we're neglecting your widows? We don't want to do that. We're too busy to look after it. Why don't you look after your widows? We'll give you the funds, and you care for your own widows. You see how they disarmed the complaint entirely. They didn't rebuke them for speaking up. They didn't think, okay, we'll, we'll just have a picnic together, and this will solve all of our differences. Uh, they didn't say, Hey, learn to speak Hebrew, and then we'll take you seriously. Uh, they didn't divide into separate churches. 
what they chose was leadership from the community that was frustrated and said, okay, you guys look after this. We trust you. And then you can trust us. And they solved it peaceably. Just for interest's sake, let's talk about some of the tensions we've faced over the years here as a church. And typically between CM and EM. Although we also have children's ministry and youth ministry, and we could have, maybe what you need to get is one of the youth pastors or the children's pastor up here to talk about some of the tensions they've had with us as an English ministry. But let's talk about some of the tensions we've had as a church. Now, I would not normally do this. But look, the Bible does it. And their tensions were a whole lot bigger than ours. So let's talk about some of the things we've faced. Because we are, this is one of the challenges of being a multicultural church. If we're all alike, we'll still fight, but we won't fight about culture. If we're different, we're going to have some tensions. Let me start with an easy one, a fun one, a silly one. Pastor Caleb has also often acknowledged that, you know, when we have formal occasions, we dress up in these robes, and we, call, we wear this thing called the stole. And the thing that's hard in a multicultural church is the stole has two sides. One side is white, one side is red. Now, on a formal occasion, which side do you put out? Well, any Anglo church, any Anglo knows the answer. If it's Good Friday, you put red because red is the color of blood. And any Chinese knows the answer that if it's Good Friday, you put white because white is the color of funerals. And red is an auspicious color. And then when you officiate a wedding... What do you put on? Any Anglo pastor knows you put white because white's a wedding color. And any Chinese, no, white's a funeral color. You don't have a funeral color. White, you know, it's a little silly thing, all right? Some of the things we, we fuss about aren't so silly or easy to deal with. You know, I'll tell you one. Isn't it fun when you can gossip? You know, the Bible justifies you being able to gossip. Because Acts 6, they kind of gossiped. It's there for all time. One of the things we used to have a lot of trouble with is space. If you're here on a Friday night, you may realize that places are pretty crowded on a Friday night. And, you know, for whatever reason, and we wish it weren't this way entirely, but CM grows faster than EM grows. So CM is always busting out the seams, and their rooms are overcrowded. And, and they know, all CMers, they all know how CM uses the space because it's all their friends, they're all mingling, you know, they're all together and they, they see how crowded it is. So where do you suppose they go looking for space every September? Not anymore. Because I blew the whistle a few times and, you know, because I'm Caucasian, I'm okay with blowing the whistle a little bit. But they used to come looking to, e oh, EM has all that space. Let's take some of that space. It's a little tense. Or how about worship and music? You know, when I first came here 15 years ago, we've, we've changed a lot. When I first came here 15 years ago, all the joint worship services, and we had six of them, seven of them, they all were run by the CM worship team. And then, right after I got here, somebody suggested, I think from the CM side, is, hey, why, you know, we're a multicultural church, why don't we have English lead some of the worship? Well, if you're from CM side, you know why we don't have English lead some of the worship, because we use drums and electric guitar. And the first, one of the, not the first, one of the early worship services where we, EM was playing, I said to EM, look, we have drums, but let's do it subdued. 
And even though we did drum subdued, one of the elderly gentlemen from the CM side came up to me during the joint worship, really upset, and said, drums are not appropriate for worship. And, and I said, well, I, you know, I can't do anything about it now. And so you know my first pastoral visit on a Monday, I scheduled a visit with him. And by the time I got there, he was so embarrassed because already his children and his grandchildren had chewed him out. And he said, no, no, don't come visit me. He, <laughs> he said, don't come visit me. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said anything. So then I went and visited him anyway, and we had a happy time rather than a, you know, tense time. If we can't agree on what color stole to wear at a wedding or funeral or Good Friday, do you think we might have some difference of opinion about what color scheme we should use, what color palette we should use on our website? Yeah, maybe there's going to be a difference of opinion. You know, sometimes this slides into ethnocentrism. Isn't I'll tell you this one too, because it's not about anybody who was here. We once had a senior pastor candidate who came to this church, and he didn't end up coming to the church. I mean, he came to Canada, and he preached from Acts 6 about how to be a multicultural church. And one application he got from Acts 6 was, we, you and me, should learn Mandarin. Now, I spent 16 years in Singapore and had only 18 Mandarin lessons. I don't know, you know, and I'm way too old at this point to learn Mandarin. But where do you get that from in Acts 6? Well, the visiting speaker, you know, the, the candidate, he was from overseas and, and from the same, well, I, I know the country he was from. And, and in that country, actually, you know, they have, well, I don't know, how am I going to say this without making it too obvious what's going on? But anyway, the point was, let me give you a different illustration. In Singapore, in Singapore, we had Chinese ministry and English ministry at the same college. Students would come from Taiwan, Hong Kong, study in Mandarin. Students would come from Singapore, Malaysia, uh, Thailand, uh, Myanmar, study in English. And we had Americans teaching in English, and you know, uh, Norwegian and Brit, and a bunch of Singaporeans, because most Singaporeans can't speak Mandarin very well. Right? It's a second language. It's not their first language. And it was really frustrating for the Singaporeans when the people from Taiwan said, well, you're not really Chinese because you're not fluent in Chinese. You know, sometimes that ethnocentrism creeps in. Or to turn it around, you know, some of the Chinese uh, uh, adults in our church are reluctant to help with youth or help with children because their English is not as good as their students and the kids will make fun of them. Or sometimes we privately make fun of Chinglish or talk in Chinglish to be funny. And you think, oh, mm, so maybe that particular knife cuts both ways. What was their solution? Their solution was, Hellenistic Jews, this matters to you, this matters to the Bible, you look after it, we trust you, you trust us, we'll be a community together. And what was the consequence of it? Acts chapter 6, verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. You see, multiculturalism is challenging, but it provides an extraordinary opportunity to live out the gospel. Because where do we see multicultural groups living in harmony in our culture? Mostly, people differentiate according to culture. If we can work together 
live in harmony multiculturally, then what we do is we proclaim the gospel. Now let's think about a little bit about the opportunities of multiculturalism. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose. Notice where the opposition came from. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. A particular synagogue, synagogue of the freedmen. Now who was in the synagogue of the freedmen? They were Jews. But they were Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria and the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. Who did God give the Great Commission to? Who did Jesus give the Great Commission to? Twelve Palestinian apostles. Who's preaching the gospel here in the synagogue of Hellenistic Jews? Stephen. A Hellenistic Jew. The, by being multicultural provides us the opportunity to be a bridge. We can instead create walls, and that's one of the challenges, but we can be a bridge between two cultures, as Stephen was a bridge for the gospel to Hellenistic Jews, because he was a Hellenist. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 and 4. On that day, after Stephen was killed, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Verse 4. Those who'd been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And we hear a story about Philip, another Hellenistic Jew. Philip preaches the gospel to the Samaritans, the first non-Jewish converts. And then Philip goes and preaches to the Ethiopian, the first African convert. Do you see the culture? Because he was raised in a Hellenistic environment, because he was Hellenized, he could share the gospel with other people who were raised in a Hellenized environment. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 26. Now those who'd been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, they traveled as far as, and listen, look at this, who traveled here? Not the Palestinian Jews. Not the apostles who were given the Great Commission. But the Hellenistic Jews. They traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. And a wave of them preached the gospel only among Jews. But some of them, People who come from Cyprus and Cyrene, they went further. They went to Antioch and they began to speak the gospel to the Greeks also, to non-Jews. So you see, being multicultural gives us bridges for the gospel to people who would otherwise not have access to it. So let me give you some illustrations of what that might look like for us. Long term, I think, we're going to have to do some things to lower walls. Long term, I think, and this is my personal opinion, not the word of God. So long term, I think we're going to have to get rid of the word Chinese in our name. Long term, I think. And there's been a little talk about that. Because that what it really means is if you're not Chinese, you don't belong here. It, it, it sends that vibe, even if we feel differently about it. But more than that, long term, I think we need to reconceptualize ourselves. We are not a Chinese church. You know, the first thing I did when I came here is the, uh, mm, oh, what do we call these? Presiders used to welcome you to, welcome, we're delighted to welcome you this morning to the Chinese Bible Church. I said, no, let's get rid of that. First, we welcome you to CBCGB. 
Now I think we've got to get rid of that because even some of our presiders can't say CBCGB. And certainly people in CM can't say CBCGB. You know, we welcome you to CBC. And the presider who stumbled over CBCGB just laughed, so I know. The first month I was here, what I did, I practiced every day, CBCGB. You know, because I was from BCEC, but we just called this Lexington Church. Right? Maybe we've got to figure this out. Maybe our, our website won't look exactly the same as everybody else's website. Maybe the youth don't want to have stodgy old English websites, you know. And maybe the EM will want a website that's a little bit different color scheme than the CM website, or the other way around, whichever way. You see, we can build walls. We can build walls to keep out the Americans. Or we can jump over those walls and flee to a church that's monocultural. Or we can live together in a multicultural church and figure out how to do that. See, what it did, does for us is this. A sociologist commented on the three functions of any Chinese church. Oh, if we're not going to be a Chinese church, what can we be? I said we should reconceptualize ourselves. I think we should reconceptualize ourselves, reconceptualize ourselves as a multicultural church. We're the Chinese congregation and an English congregation and anything else that may come along. For a while we had a con Korean congregation meeting here that wasn't part of us, but still. A multicultural church with a Chinese congregation and an and a, uh, English congregation. And in fact, I want to go, go a little bit further than that because my wife is not Mandarin speaking, she's Cantonese, and she's still Chinese. So I think we should say we're a Mandarin, we have a Mandarin-speaking congregation and an English-speaking congregation. And then one day if we have a Cantonese Speaking congregation, we acknowledge them. They're, they're also Chinese, but they're Cantonese speaking, you know, something like that. We can reconceptualize this. Uh, you notice when, when we planted a church out in the West, you notice the word Chinese does not appear in their name? BMW, BC, Boston Metro West Bible Church. Their signs Chinese. Their constituency is Chinese, but not the name. So maybe long term we'll change the name, but that's not official. That's just a personal opinion. Another thing we can do, we have this, oh, so, so, so three functions of what we call a Chinese church, right? The sociologists are three functions of a Chinese church. Preservation of culture, preservation of overseas culture. Let's see them do that. That's really good. Assimilation to American culture. We can help people assimilate. That's really who we are. We can help bridge that gap. Conversion. Let's lead people to Christ as we help them assimilate to EM culture. Children of immigrants, you know, because of the language difficulties and because of the way of raising children, you know. Uh, CM looks for us to help integrate their, you know, help bridge between them and the way they were taught to parent by their parenting and the way w Americans raise their kids. You know, in Singapore I did something with when my kids were long, young, I would put one of them on my shoulder, I would put them on my shoulders and walk around with them. Oh, Singaporeans were horrified. So dangerous. Yeah. Or another thing, if ever you go to Asia, you know, here, here a trick, okay? Papaya trees. Papaya trees, the branches fall off, and they are spectacular because they're stiff, but they're hollow, so they don't hurt. And you can sword fight with your kids with papaya tree branches. And I, some students walked past me one day. The students were supposed to respect their, you know, their professors. They walked past me one day and says, he's teaching his kids to hit him with sticks. 
So, you know, there's different ways of parenting. So, so youth ministry, kids ministry, they really, it helps if we can be the intermediaries, the bridge between the parents and the younger generation. But we're not restricted to reaching the Chinese, you see. This matters to me. When I was a student in Australia, a, you know, grad student, I didn't expect it to be different. Hey, they're all white. They all speak English of a sort. I couldn't figure them out. You know who I hung out with on a, on a campus at college? I hung out with all the Asians. <laughs> it was Asians plus Chuck in this, in this group. <laughs> And then, well, you know the rest of the story. I married an Asian. And then I went to Asia. All of that happened because we shared one commonality. None of us understood these Aussies. <laughs> so we welcome anyone here who's bicultural, multicultural. We don't understand the Americans fully. We're not 100% lily white. If you're not 100%, you know, and it is a 100% American thing, welcome here. You don't have to be Chinese or Asian even. When my son went to Wheaton, another example of the same thing. When my oldest son went to Wheaton College, Christian College. You know, my oldest son, he was uh, 18 when he went to Wheaton, 19. He spent his first 16 years living in Singapore. You know who he hung out with at Wheaton? He didn't hang out with the Asians born in America. He didn't hang out with the Anglos. Who he hung out with was all the other foreign-raised kids. He said it's the first time in his life he felt at home. Even though one of these kids, you know, my son grew up in safe, prosperous, wealthy Singapore. He'd hang out with people from Ghana. People who survived violence as missionary kids in Africa. People who'd grown up in Latin America. They all hung out together because they all understood each other. They all understood what it was like to be third culture kids. Never fitting out entirely in your own culture, where my son was... Uh, called the Chinese boy, never figuring in overseas culture where he was called American boy, but now you're living with other people who understand what it's like to be multicultural. So really our doors are open to anyone who's multicultural. Our doors are open to anyone, but this is one of the groups that we expect will obviously come. Another advantage to being a bridge is the kind of thing like Lee and Diana shared this morning. Richard and Rachel, Lee and Diana, Eric and May, Jason and Ella. It's not just we are a bridge for CM, but CM is a bridge for us. Because a lot of us have a passion for missions. And the most obvious place politically for us to work is either is in China, or the most obvious place for us to work ethnically or culturally is with Chinese anywhere in the world. And CM can help us figure that out. So we can be a bridge for them, and they can be a bridge for us. There's great advantages. We have the same advantages as the church did in Acts 6, as the Hellenistic Jews did in Acts 6. And what we want to explore together as a community is how do we be, use these natural advantages, these natural bridges, to serve as bridges between cultures and as bridges to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you to be with us as a congregation as we figure some of these things out. That you might use us as you used the Hellenistic Jews in the first century. That we might preserve unity in our midst that we might spread the gospel through these bridges. We ask you to guide us in Jesus' name. Amen.